This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week from Gadigal Land. I'm David Lipson. For years, Australian governments have refused to repatriate citizens who travelled to Syria to join the Islamic State. But ASIO has been working on a secret plan to bring almost 60 women and children back. What happens when they get here? And a number of people in Indonesia, including police and match organisers, face criminal charges after a stampede at a football stadium killed more than 130 people, shining a light on the brutal tactics employed by police. But first... There was fevered speculation this week about whether the government was going to dump or at least shave back its promised Stage 3 income tax cuts. The tax cuts, which predominantly benefit the wealthy, have already been legislated. But the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has this week refused to rule anything out. He points to changing economic circumstances and the dangers of getting big tax cuts wrong, like the UK. What we've seen play out in the United Kingdom is not irrelevant to us. Uh, It's not irrelevant to us because it's a cautionary tale about what can happen uh, if you get your policy settings out of whack uh, in a way that doesn't suit the economic conditions, and particularly the global economic conditions. The UK's new government, led by Liz Truss, created an economic crisis after ramming through the biggest package of tax cuts in 50 years, sending the pound plummeting to its lowest ever levels against the US dollar and forcing the Bank of England to intervene to prevent mass insolvencies. I know the plan put forward only 10 uh, days ago has caused a little turbulence. I get it. I get it. This week, the new Chancellor, or what we would call Treasurer, Kwasi Kwarteng, was forced into a major U-turn, dropping the promised income tax cuts for the highest earners. We are listening and have listened. And now I want to focus on delivering the major parts of our growth package. So when inflation's rising and government budgets are strained, are tax cuts just a bad idea? And should Australia be learning from the UK's misadventure? It's a debacle, isn't it, to be frank? (laughs) Stephen Hamilton is an assistant professor of economics at the George Washington University. They did two things, and it's important to separate these two things. On one hand, they launched a very significant fiscal expansion in the short term, spent about £60 billion uh, subsidising people's energy use, which in the short run is highly inflationary. Now, simultaneously, what they did is they announced a a very significant series of tax cuts between £20 and £40 billion a year forever, uh, and those tax cuts weren't at all funded, right? So there was no sense of discipline, long-run fiscal sustainability. Uh, They just promised the tax cuts forever and they said, we'll figure out how to pay for it later. And the response to the combination of those two things, the short-term recklessness on macroeconomics and the long-term recklessness on fiscal discipline was, uh, you know, a sort of a a market collapse. The City of London woke up to a currency crisis, a global vote of no confidence in government plans to fuel growth with borrowing. And the Bank of England has had to spend £65 billion to prop up the markets. You've got the Bank of England stepping in now to try and clean up a mess. A government has caused that has never happened. So 
what was the government thinking? I mean, why did it announce <laughs> such a big change so quickly and, and then such a big U-turn? Yeah, so you can't ignore the politics, right? So we just came out of a you know a primary challenge between Rishi Sunak, who was the former, what Australians would understand as the treasurer, right, the chancellor of the exchequer, and Liz Truss, the winner. And you know Liz Truss's position really in that competition for the leadership was to sort of be the new Margaret Thatcher, right, which is you know slash taxes and assume this big boom, you know, of, of economic activity that comes from it. Whenever there's change, there is disruption. And not everybody will be in favour of change, but everyone will benefit from the results. A growing economy and a better future. And this package really was part of delivering on that promise that the issue is, you know, it really clashed with the conservative idea of fiscal discipline and prudence, right? So there was really a conservative backlash that led to the backflip. Now, they really only stepped back on one measure, which is eliminating the top tax bracket, which is, you know, a tiny fraction of the overall package. Really, the budget impact that they originally announced will be more or less as it was. Tax cuts are normally popular. Yeah. What, what what happened here? Is it just because of the market collapse and the general reaction or was it because they were going to the, the wealthiest? Yeah, so they announced a range of measures, right? It was a package. So there was big energy subsidies. They announced a, a tax cut for the whole population at the lower end. But the issue is they also announced eliminating the top tax bracket entirely. And the trust plan, I think, was to use that as encouragement to bring in kind of talent from overseas to Britain, right, to attract them with these low tax rates. And in the end, it didn't cost that much money. It was only around £2 billion a year for that measure in a package that costs between sort of 20 and $40 billion per year. So it was minor in fiscal terms. But I think given the, the times, that may have some merit economically, but politically, it's very difficult to justify at a time when the country is being asked to tighten its belt to hand out a big tax cut for the rich. So they've done a big U-turn on that. Where does that leave Britain now? Yeah, so look, they haven't announced what they're going to do to pay for the scheme. I think that's the big problem. Um, so in the UK, as opposed to Australia, they have an independent office of budget responsibility. So that office needs to cost the plan. They need to say what it's going to cost in the long run, what impact it's going to have, how it's going to you know, damage the budget. The, one of the reasons why they release this as a mini budget rather than a full-fledged budget is that the Office of Budget Responsibility doesn't automatically cost these kinds of plans. So they kind of avoided scrutiny there. A new budget will come in November. That will be a fully-fledged budget that will be costed by the office. And again, it's punched a massive hole in the British sort of financial future through the very significant increase in spending and, and cut in taxes. Uh, and they're going to have to come up with ways to fund those. You know, they've already experienced kind of downgrades from credit rating agencies. They've experienced this big reduction in the British pound, this big sort of collapse in financial markets. These are all a sign that, you know, you can't go out there and fund a gigantic sort of spending and tax cut package without actually having a plan for delivering it. And, and I think that has some lessons for Australia. Indeed, because all of this has set off a debate about tax cuts here in Australia, specifically the stage three income tax cuts, which are due in 2024. Now, during the election, Anthony Albanese promised not to ditch them if he won government. Just remind us of what these three stages of tax cuts actually are. 
The parallel between the UK and Australia is uncanny, right? Jim Chalmers due to deliver his budget update later this year, budget updated in the UK just now, big tax cuts for the rich just now, big tax cuts coming in two years for the rich in Australia. So I understand why some Labor backbenchers and cabinet ministers have latched on that as, as a reason to, to advocate scrapping those. Now, stage three, as you as the name suggests, is the third stage in three stages of tax cuts announced originally by the Turnbull government and then it, it flowed through to the Morrison government. And the earlier two stages of that plan really went to low and middle income earners. And, and some people would be aware of the low and middle income tax offset. Some of the listeners would have got a check in the mail when they did their tax returns this year. That's part of the earlier stages of that plan, overwhelmingly went to low and middle income earners, you know, increasing thresholds, providing support to those on lower incomes. The third stage is not due to flow until 2024, and that's the part of the package that goes to middle and high income earners predominantly. It has three parts. The first part is a reduction in the 32.5% rate to 30, right? So if you currently pay 32.5, you'll now pay 30. That applies to anyone earning more than 40 ish thousand a year. So it applies to the vast majority of taxpayers. The second part is the 37% rate, which is the next threshold up, is getting eliminated entirely. So anyone who is on 37% rate will now be dropped down to 30. That'll affect anyone earning more than 120,000 a year. And the third part was the top threshold, the 45% rate that cuts in at 180,000. That threshold's getting increased to 200. So that will benefit anyone earning more than 180000 So if you look at those three things together, the first benefits people more than 40-ish, the second benefits people on more than 120-ish, the third benefits people on more than 180-ish, well, anyone on more than 180000 is going to get all three, which means the tax cut going to the wealthiest Australians is, is truly enormous. And certainly as a proportion of your income, these tax cuts are what we would call regressive. As a proportion of your income, you get a bigger tax cut the more, more income you earn. So when Jim Chalmers points to the UK as a cautionary tale, is he really comparing apples with apples? The situation in the UK and Australia is very different. We shouldn't get confused about that, right? So the UK is a net energy importer at a time when you have a crisis in Ukraine and you have energy prices spiking across the world. If you're a net energy importer, you're in trouble and the UK faces that issue. Australia is a net energy exporter, right? So we export natural gas and other resources that have spiked in value. And so we've profited massively, actually, from this recent crisis, notwithstanding, obviously, high inflation and high prices domestically. So Australia is in a much better position. But what I would say is, Australia does have problems. So I think we do have a similar problem to the UK in a sort of a long-run unsustainable budget position. So it's pretty clear that our budget in the long run is really not sustainable and we need to do something pretty dramatic to correct that. And so at a time where it's reckless for the UK to engage in a pretty massive tax cut, punch a big hole in their revenue base, it's similarly reckless to do that in Australia. And so I think that does brought across is a pretty important lesson to take into this budget. Yes, because that hole in the budget is, if I'm not wrong, $243 billion over yes. 10 years. 
So the debate in, in Australia now and within the government is over whether it's worse to scrap these stage three tax cuts and break an election promise or keep them even if they're unfair and they blow a big hole in the budget. What are the pros and cons of, of each argument? Yeah, it's a great point. So the first thing to say is yes, it's roughly $20 billion a year, which is pretty massive, right? <laughs> so we're taking $20 billion out of the budget, and you have to say to yourself, of all the things that we could do, if we could spend $20 billion a year, is this the best way to spend that money? And to be honest, I find that a pretty difficult bar. On one hand, there is a sense in which you can't have bracket creep. You can't have the top threshold, for example, fixed at 180000 for nearly 15 years now. It hasn't moved since 2008 when Kevin Rudd was the Prime Minister. In that time, the median income has gone up by 40, more than 40%, but that threshold has remained constant. So more and more people are finding themselves in the top bracket facing that high income tax rate. And we think that's kind of bad economically. It kind of discourages work. It has all sorts of negative consequences. So, you know, there is some argument for tax relief at the top end, but I think that the issue is piling each of those three components on top of one another, when you accumulate them, they become really unsustainable and, and unforgivable. And so I think the way to deal with this problem, you know, is to kind of pair them back a little bit and to kind of give some relief to the top end, but not go overboard. So an obvious solution to this would be, you know, one of those parts, say the second part, getting rid of that 37% rate. If we canceled that part, you'd cut the cost of the program roughly in half and everyone would still benefit. They'd just benefit a little bit less, right? So I think that's hopefully the kind of thing the government is considering, not getting rid of it entirely, but shaving it down, making it a little bit less egregious, maintaining some of those economic benefits, but limiting the kind of overall fiscal cost. Yes, there's a broken promise, but the tax cuts go to a tiny fraction of the population. Right, So if you can say to this tiny fraction of the population, you're going to get a tax cut, it's just not going to be quite as big as what we thought because economic circumstances have changed, the budget's really not in a good state. Politically, that's surely not that hard to win, right? The, the vast majority of people uh, are going to get exactly what we told them. And a tiny fraction of people are going to get something, but just a little bit less than we thought. When that can save you, say, $10 billion a year, it seems to me like not the hardest argument to win. Stephen Hamilton, an assistant professor of economics at the George Washington University. Well, for years, women and children who went to Syria after the Islamic State group declared a caliphate have been begging to be allowed back into Australia. We're all tired, to be honest. Like, uh, we just want a normal life. Uh, my kids want, uh, they tell me that they want um, a better education. They want to see more to this world than gates and tents. This week, it was reported that Australia's domestic spy agency, ASIO, is finalising a secret mission to bring almost 60 citizens home from the Al-Raj detention camp near the Iraqi border, setting off a debate about the risk to national security. There's a group there at Al-Raj comprising 16 women and 42 children. And that's the group that the Australian government has been 
engaging pretty heavily with over the last couple of years. And this is a group that the Australian government are looking now at repatriating. Ellen Wynette is the Australian newspaper's associate editor. Obviously, they're keeping details of this to themselves, but we've managed to find out a few bits and pieces. And that is that ASIO have been in the camp in the last couple of months. They have spoken to the women there. There's been some American officials in talking to the women as well. And it seems that Australia is getting ready to start bringing back this group in perhaps family groups, um, perhaps a third at a time, with the most vulnerable to come back first. And they will be either very young children or very sick and women who are considered to have been trafficked or coerced into going to Syria in the first place back in 2014 or 2015. There has been a long debate, as you know, about whether this is the right thing to do. Is this a a risk to national security? And, And why do you think the Albanese government has decided to bring them back? I think that it's best we take our cue from the experts on this. And clearly the experts think that there is a risk posed by this. And it appears that the Albanese government has decided it's a risk that can be managed and it's a risk that they need to take. I think the fact that people are starting to understand that these children have been living in this camp now for three and a half years or in one or other camp for three and a half years. Children are innocent and have not been accused of any crimes. There are five Australian children there who were born in the camps and they're three and four years old. I think the youngest is two, about to turn three. They've never taken a a step outside the wire and that is not a great situation for Australia to find itself in. They are Australian citizens. Mm. And what we're seeing now is that most of the advanced democracies like Australia are now repatriating their citizens. There is still opposition from the coalition to this course of action. The opposition, of course, refused to repatriate Australians from Syria when it was in government. What is Peter Dutton, the leader's position on this now? And and more broadly, what are the opposition's concerns? The opposition's concerns relate quite strongly to how they're going to fund the monitoring and surveillance that's going to be required when the women come back to Australia. It's very expensive to monitor a person on a terrorism control order. And we've seen some figures this week, it can cost more than $2 million to monitor a single individual. And presumably ASIO suspects and the Australian Federal Police suspect that some of these women uh, do pose a risk and will need intensive surveillance. They've been living for years now in a camp socialising with people who have either committed terrorist attacks uh, or who have been planning terrorist attacks, uh, then we need to take it very seriously. I hold grave concerns. I think one of the most important things that's happened here is that it's been three and a half years since the fall of Islamic State. And in that time, the Australian Federal Police, ASIO, State and Territory Police have been able to do a lot of work investigating the citizens that we have over in Syria and investigating their extended families in Australia. So they've got a really clear picture of who's there, who their family members are, who their associates are, who poses a risk and who doesn't. And it's quite possible, I think, that if the coalition had retained government, that at some point in this term, they were going to have to face this issue themselves. The children over there are getting older. The older they get, the harder this problem gets. And so moving now when most of them are smaller, younger and easier able to fit back into school or fit back into society, 
is probably, I suspect, part of the advice they're getting from the experts. Is that because of the risk of radicalisation inside those camps? Yeah, it is. And you're looking at kids here who've been exposed to terrible traumas. The ones who weren't born in the camp grew up in under Islamic State. They've seen some terrible things. Some of them are injured. And they're surrounded by people who may not have renounced some of the ideology of Islamic State. But if they're very little, the experts say it's much, much easier to show them another way to help them fit back into mainstream Australian society. One of the issues that's been raised is the number of fighting aged males. Actually, there aren't any fighting aged teenage boys in the camps. There was one His name was Yusuf Sahab. There's no suggestion he was ever accused of a crime or had been a fighter. But he was placed into a youth prison. Amid a violent siege on a Syrian prison, 17-year-old Yusuf Sahab issued this desperate plea. I'm scared if I die any time. Please, I need any help. It would turn out to be his final contact with family. And Yusuf Zahab actually uh, is believed to have died this year. He was only 17 years old. So if and and when these families do return, you mentioned control orders. Just explain that for our audience and, and what else can we expect to happen to them? Women as a group have volunteered as part of their negotiation with the previous government and with this government to come back to Australia, have volunteered to undergo a a terrorism control order. And these are orders that are determined by the Supreme Courts and they restrict your movements. So if you are subject to a terrorism control order, you can be required to wear an ankle monitoring device. You have to give your passwords uh, for all your devices to authorities. They can monitor your social media, monitor your internet usage. They can control who you see Uh, who you speak to. So they can be quite restrictive. The women have offered this to try and bring some reassurance to people who are worried about them. The authorities, of course, want to know who these people are going to be dealing with because one of the issues about how well they're going to reintegrate into Australia is the people that they're associating with. I think about nine, ten perhaps maximum of the women could be charged and the most likely charge is an offence that was on the books just for a couple of years but it's quite a serious one and that is enter a prescribed area and that was a law introduced to stop people going to uh, Islamic State areas, particularly the city of Mosul in Iraq and Raqqa in Syria. The issue is whether they chose to go or if they were tricked or coerced to go. So certainly a number of them were in their 20s when they left. So I'm guessing there will be either legal argument or court argument as to what their state of mind was when they went, what power they had to make a decision to go. I can give an example of a woman who is over in the camps now. Her name is Shema Assad, and she was 15 when she was taken to Syria by her family, by her parents. She was married off to an older man there and had her first child almost immediately. By the time she was 19, Shema was in the camp, pregnant with three little kids. So she's still there now. She's 22. Mm. She's got four children, and she went there at 15. So I think when you've got a situation like that, you really have to have a serious argument there as to whether a person of 15 taken by her parents had any agency or any power to make a decision about that. Ellen Winnett, The Australian's Associate Editor.
It was one of the world's worst sporting disasters. More than 130 people died in the recent stampede at an Indonesian football stadium after police unleashed tear gas on fans who'd surged across the pitch. Police say several people are now facing charges of criminal negligence causing death. They include members of their own force who shot the tear gas at fans and match organisers who are now accused of letting in a crowd bigger than the stadium's capacity. Andreas Hasono is a researcher for Human Rights Watch in Indonesia and a former journalist. The national police dismiss the police chief in Malang. This is the city where the stampede took place and also remove nine police commanders in charge of the security in the stadium that unfortunate night. So these nine plus one, ten officers were removed from their position. Do you have confidence that justice will be done in relation to those police officers and any other officials that may end up being charged? Unfortunately, no. I have covered so-called human rights trial for more than four decades. You name them, East Timor, the killing of the Maduris in Kalimantan, West Papua, Aceh, Java, of course. I will not believe it until I see, I hear, I read the verdict. Just stepping back a bit, you're a former journalist, used to cover Indonesian football. What have you learned about the culture in your time, both as a journalist and as a human rights campaigner? First of all, I love football. Uh, when I became a journalist, obviously, I cover from stadium to another stadium. Of course, it was cheerful, but also some ugly fight. It ended in 1996 when I covered the final between Indonesia and Thailand at the Jakarta Main Stadium. And I went out. I saw more than 70 cars destroyed, uh, windshields, masks turned upside down. It turned out to be one of them is my car. I thought, this is a very dangerous game and the risks are real. And I cannot cover football if I don't want to face this kind of risk. So I, I asked for a transfer and I began to cover ethnic and religious violence. And then when I started to understand ethnic tribal tension, ethnic rivalries, religious discrimination in Indonesia, I just realized that football the blood sport in Indonesia is the mirror of ethnic and religious tension of this young nation. So look, clearly Indonesian football can be violent. We've seen that for, for decades and you've seen it up yeah. close and, and even yeah. deadly. I mean, it was and probably still is the, the, considered to be the deadliest league in the world. But this incident is something else entirely and it's also shone a light on police violence. Tell us about the role of police in this and their reputation within Indonesia. Uh, historically, Indonesian police is not only doing policing work. Historically, since day one, since you know this new republic was declared independence in 1945, because of the Japanese occupation influence, the police is also doing military work. Vice versa, the Indonesian military is not only doing defense work. The Indonesian military since day one, since 1945, is also doing policing work. And also, and this is important, since day one, the police and the military, especially the army, are involved in bitter rivalry. Sometimes 
with violence, killing. This, it is an unhealthy relationship since day one, and until now, it is embarrassing to admit as an Indonesian, we haven't succeeded to reform both the police and the military. So there's been this toxic combination of often violent football crowds and heavy-handed yeah. police. Have you seen genuine attempts made to, to try to fix this culture? I don't know. I really don't know. The often excessive use of force by either the police or the military, the military also was there in, in the Malang Stadium, make things worse. I don't know uh, where and when we can fix this problem. There is an English word that comes from this part of the world. It is called running amok. People are smiling, saying, hello, mister, good morning. And the next day, they are running amok. They are involved in bloody violence. That culture is deeply rooted in Indonesia. But of course, we are living in a modern world. We are living with nation state. We are not living on ethnic kingdom, sultanate. We have to move forward. It might take some time, maybe generation, for many, many people in Indonesia to understand that we have to move forward. That was Human Rights Watch researcher Andreas Hasono. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Nell Whitehead, Nick Grimm, Isabel Masali, Will Ockenden, and me, David Lipson. 